This is a story about two friends, best friends, who went on one last drug-fueled camping trip before one of them was set to pursue his lifelong dream of joining the United States Marine Corps. By the next morning, only one of them would emerge from the wooded area alive. You are listening to California Dreaming's 174th episode, The Tale of the Blue Crow. Let me first take the time to thank you as always for listening to and enjoying this podcast. This is a completely independent, ad-free, one-woman show, but there are a number of ways that you can help support this production. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps give the show some visibility and pushes us up the charts. You can also recommend us in true crime fan groups on social media, and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And if you can't get enough California Dreaming, you can subscribe to our Patreon, where you can not only access dozens of full-length exclusive bonuses for as little as $1 a month, you will also be able to help keep this podcast afloat. This week, I'd like to thank Alistair C., Tara Jane, Sarah M., Elizabeth H., Sherry R., Valia F., and Joy N. for joining Patreon. And I'd like to thank Raquel L., Brother Earl, Catherine D., Sue B., and Tina C. for raising their pledge to the next tier or for switching to the annual subscription option, which will save you 15% for the year. If Patreon isn't your thing, but you'd still like to contribute to supporting this podcast, you can make a one-time donation through our PayPal using our email, californiadreaming at gmail.com. And speaking of PayPal, I would also like to thank Logan M. for not only being a longtime patron, but also for making a recent one-time donation through our PayPal. Thank you all so much for helping me keeping the show going. And you can find links to everything that I just mentioned in the show notes for this episode. All right, let's get to this week's story. 23-year-old Sheldon Stewart and 20-year-old Trevor Holminski were described as best friends. I looked all around the internet and there is so little out there about this case. There are mostly short local news stories and some court documents and the story did air on Crime Watch Daily with Chris Hansen. But when it came to Sheldon and Trevor's history and the evolution of their friendship and how they became friends, there just isn't a whole lot out there about it. It did strike me a little unusual that they were three years apart in age because people that young, usually when they say that they're best friends, they often meet in school, so they're closer in age. Though I did run across an article that said that they met in some sort of trade school that they were both enrolled in, and they became fast friends with a couple of other guys. I wish I had more to tell you about them and their friendship and how it all evolved, but there just isn't a whole lot out there. In my searches, I even hit those Google results that don't make any sense as to what you're searching for, like I reached the end of Google in just one page, maybe even two pages. But for one of these young men, there is a tad bit more out there, which I will share with you at the end of the show. Trevor Holminski had recently enlisted in the military. He had gotten through some troubled teen years with his parents, which I will talk about later also. 
but he emerged from it with a renewed interest in following through with what he always wanted to do, which was to be a Marine. Trevor actually made a 12-minute documentary with his mom and dad about his experience in his teen years, which I can tack on the end of this episode for you. I will provide you with the audio, or you can go to YouTube. I will give you the link to that as well. And Sheldon Stewart was one of Trevor's best friends. And since Trevor was about to head out to boot camp, they decided they wanted to party together one last time before he left. So on August 21st, 2015, the two of them headed out in Trevor's car for Bucks Lake, a very densely wooded area in Northern California. An article said it's near the small town of Quincy, but that really means very little to me. I'm not as familiar with Northern California as I am with Southern California. I looked at maps and it appears that Bucks Lake is about three hours north of Sacramento. It is very woodsy up there and you really need to be an experienced outdoorsy type person. And because Trevor had gone through some wilderness survival training just a couple of years earlier, there was really no concern on the part of his parents about him making the four to five hour drive from where they lived in Emeryville, which is in the Bay Area. And he would be with his friend. So yeah, his parents were not concerned at all about his safety or his ability to stay in the woods overnight. Anyway, I don't think that the parents knew this, but apparently these two young men brought with them some LSD. That was supposed to have been part of their last hurrah together, so to speak, as it's been reported. I don't know how far into the near future that it was that Trevor was to head out to boot camp. But he had already enlisted. I assume he'd already been cleared to go. So I guess he thought it was okay to drop some acid before he left, maybe? It doesn't sound like a particularly great idea to me. But then again, I'm not a 20-year-old guy about to commit my entire life to the Marine Corps either. Either way, that was the plan. Trevor, Sheldon, camping, and LSD. It already sounds a little bit ominous, doesn't it? I've never tried acid, but if I ever did, and it really starts causing you to hallucinate and trip out like they say it does, I don't think I'd want to be in the woods, but again, that's just me. So when Trevor and Sheldon set off for their overnight camping trip, nobody could have ever imagined how these two young men's lives would change so drastically, and it would leave so many questions as to why, how all of this happened, all those questions are still unanswered to this day. It all began unfolding the morning after the friends set off for their camping trip. There were several campers nearby at Bucks Lake who became aware of a brush fire on the campgrounds and firefighters were summoned to the area. Some of the campers, in speaking to one another, recalled hearing some shouting in the area the night before. It sounded a little bit far away. It was kind of faint. It appeared to be a fight of some sort, but then it was quiet all of a sudden again. The campground host, after calling for help, went to the area of the fire where he and another camper made some effort to try to suppress the fire on their own. That's when they discovered a young man laying on the ground near the fire. 
He appeared to barely be conscious or even alive himself. He didn't seem coherent, and as they tried to get him away from the fire and to safety, he either wouldn't or couldn't be of any assistance in getting himself away from the fire. As a matter of fact, the campers reported that the man asked them to leave him there, to leave him alone because his life was over. This young man was Sheldon Stewart. He told the two men trying to help him that he was the one that started the fire by using a cigarette as a signal to try and get help, and that he had been stabbed in the neck by his friend with whom he got into a physical altercation with. They asked him where his friend was, and Sheldon said that he stabbed him and he ran off somewhere and that he didn't know which way his friend went. When the paramedics arrived and they were getting him ready to transport to a local hospital, another camper heard Sheldon tell the paramedic that his friend had made a sexual advance towards him the night before and that he rebuffed those advances, which caused his friend to get upset, at which point his friend began attacking him and stabbing him in the neck. He also told the paramedic that after the altercation, his friend ran off and he didn't know where his friend was. The campers were actually able to suppress most of the fire on their own. It was just still smoldering and slowly burning itself out. Well, that friend that Sheldon was talking about that stabbed him was Trevor. And wherever Trevor went, he couldn't have gotten that far because his car was quickly located in the parking lot and his wallet was inside. When law enforcement arrived at the scene, they were not going to be able to talk to Sheldon there because the paramedics needed to get him to the hospital quickly. But one of the deputies managed to take a picture of Sheldon's neck wounds before they left. Firefighters arrived on the scene to handle the rest of the fire or whatever was left smoldering. And they did take notice of one hotspot in particular. But as soon as they got a closer look, it was clear that that hotspot was in fact a body, or what was left of a body. It had been burned beyond recognition and was laying in the middle of this campfire pit. This body was burned so completely that the charred skeleton was visible and smoke was continuing to rise from it. And because the body had been burned so extensively, Firefighters and law enforcement knew immediately that that body just didn't simply burn by itself in the fire pit. Someone had to have been sitting there for a really long time, stoking the fire or feeding it to keep it going. Because human beings, our bodies are made of so much water, we aren't particularly flammable on our own. So being that this body was burned down to its bones was chilling. And clearly, this was no accident. Among the things found in the fire pit along with what was left of that body were the keys to the car in the parking lot. That car belonged to Sheldon's friend, Trevor. The brush fire had now turned into a murder. And while they first thought the stabbing victim's friend was hiding someplace in the woods, authorities soon became fairly certain that they need not look any further for the missing friend. This incinerated body was Trevor Homolsky. An investigator headed over to the hospital where Sheldon was being treated in order to question him regarding the circumstances of what happened at their campsite. 
Sheldon admitted that they had taken some hallucinogens, and shortly afterwards, Trevor first attempted to make a sexual advance, which Sheldon said he rebuffed. Then he said after he turned down Trevor's advance, Trevor stabbed him in the neck with a knife. Then Sheldon, also armed with a knife, stabbed Trevor back in an act that he described as being one of self-defense. He further explained that he believed Trevor planned this camping trip with the intentions of there being some sexual activity between the two of them, and that the reason why Trevor brought the LSD was to drug him so he could sexually assault him because he knew his advances would be rejected. Sheldon, also with cuts on his wrists, said that those cuts were self-inflicted because he was afraid that nobody was going to find him to render aid. At this initial time that Sheldon was being questioned, he wasn't told that they had found that burned up body in the fire pit. Not quite yet. Later on that same afternoon, detectives came back to the hospital to question Sheldon again. At this time, they knew that they were dealing with a homicide. Though Trevor had not been positively identified yet, they were certain it was him. As they spoke to Sheldon, he described Trevor as his best friend. Even their birthdays were close together, only three days apart. They both lived in the Bay Area, and they drove up to the campsite together the day before on August 21st, and he basically recounted the same story that he told the investigator earlier in the day, that Trevor was being persistent and insistent that they engage in sexual activity. This occurred after they ingested LSD-laced papers, which they had done several times in the past. Sheldon said that after he told Trevor that he was not interested in him sexually, Trevor then issued a threat. If he didn't, then he was going to leave him up there in the woods and drive home without him. After Trevor made that alleged threat, he pulled out his knife and stabbed Sheldon in the neck, which prompted Sheldon to also take a knife and stab him back. Then Trevor supposedly left Sheldon there, ostensibly to just bleed out and die. Sheldon said that he was feeling despondent and he was certain that he was dying a slow, agonizing death all alone. So he next decided to cut his own wrists, hoping to hurry the process along. From there, the next thing Sheldon described was remembering when other campers discovered him the following morning. He claimed that he was unaware of anything that happened between the time he cut his wrists and the next morning when he was being woken up by the campers trying to move him away from the fire. Sheldon told the detectives that he knew Trevor had an interest in both men and women, but it was never a thing that had come up between them in the past. He said that this was the first time that anything like that had ever happened. And he said that he tried to tell Trevor that he wasn't interested in him in that way. And then he told officers that he even showed Trevor his penis, which he said was not erect, in an effort to demonstrate that he was not interested in him sexually, not even aroused, even a little bit. Now, I personally thought that that was weird, showing his friend his penis to convince him that he wasn't interested. I mean, last I heard, even when guys go to the bathroom, you just kind of look up at the ceiling, right? No glancing around, no chit-chatting, just pee and go. I think we've had this conversation before, and hopefully this won't have to come up again, but 
I don't know how things are between two guys that are besties. I'm sure that they're more comfortable than two strangers in a bathroom would be, but still, it just sounded weird to me, him showing his thing, you know? Anyway, the detectives left the room for a few minutes before they came back into Sheldon's hospital room to continue questioning him about what happened at the campsite. He continued to insist that Trevor kept telling him that he was going to leave him, that he was never going to find his way home, and that the only way he was going to get home was for him to agree to having sex. Then Trevor stabbed him, and then he stabbed Trevor, and then Trevor ran off. Then one of the detectives tried a little bit of a ruse with Sheldon, and he asked him, What if we told you that Trevor told us that you attacked him first? And Sheldon said, That would be a lie. The conversation transitioned to the fire. What about the fire? Who said it? And Sheldon said that he had discarded a cigarette and that may not have been completely put out, but beyond that, no, he didn't start any fire in the pit. So dreamers, I'm thinking that Sheldon here thinks Trevor was completely burned to ashes in the fire simply based on the way these officers are asking their questions. So Sheldon offers this bit of information. He had heard someone mention Trevor's car was still there in the parking lot. So Sheldon suggested that Trevor must be hiding someplace in the woods. So yeah, Sheldon is really thinking that he actually was able to burn Trevor so completely that there was not a single trace of him to be found. But the detectives knew that Trevor's body was in the fire pit, so they weren't going to waste any time listening to Sheldon's suggestions and theories. So they continued to press Sheldon for more information. They knew that there was a body in the fire pit, and they just wanted to know what happened. Sheldon abruptly changed his story and quickly told the detectives that he was willing to take a lie detector test that would back up what he was now going to tell them. Sheldon said that after they stabbed each other, Trevor wasn't dead, but he was badly wounded and in a lot of pain. It was then that Trevor asked Sheldon to please put him out of his misery. So Sheldon obliged and stabbed his friend to death. So this was a fight, then it was self-defense, and then it was a humane act. As for the fire, well, Sheldon described that as his subconscious attempting to cover up what happened. So it really wasn't him. It was his subconscious. So as you can see, from the very beginning, Sheldon was doing what he could to try to distance himself from this event. So next, in an effort to establish a pattern in Trevor's behavior, Sheldon began telling detectives about a previous incident that had been quote-unquote sealed by the court when Trevor was a minor in which he drugged another minor in order to have sex with her, but Trevor told Sheldon that that sexual encounter was consensual. At that point, detectives were just kind of done listening to this, and they went ahead and read Sheldon his rights, and when he was asked if he wanted to continue talking with detectives, he stated, I'd like to have a lawyer present now that I'm being arrested. So the detectives told Sheldon, okay, then we're going to go ahead and speak to the district attorney, who in turn will decide whether to file charges against you. They also told Sheldon that they were going to assign an officer to guard his hospital room to make sure that he did not attempt an escape. And Sheldon then asked, so my life is totally in the hands of the DA whom I've never met and I don't know. He doesn't know anything about me. K-9 
Can I at least talk to the DA myself? The detective said that he would pass along his request, but he doesn't know if he could because he asked for an attorney. The questioning stopped at that point because it has to by law. A couple hours later that same day, the detectives came back with the prosecutor. They reminded Sheldon of his Miranda rights as well as his request to speak with the prosecutor. The prosecutor asked Sheldon what was on his mind. Sheldon stated that he has messed up his entire life. He recounted a nearly identical recitation of the same account that he had given to the detectives earlier in the day, and he did not have anything more or different to offer. When the conversation was finishing up, Sheldon asked if he was going to go to prison for the rest of his life, and the prosecutor said that he needed to evaluate the facts, but stated, like you've already said, this is a bad situation. One of the only places to retrieve information about this story aside from the court documents and a handful of local news articles was an episode of Crime Watch Daily. It is on YouTube and I will provide you with the link in the show notes, but I'll also share some direct quotes from Sheldon Stewart here in the show. There were things that he said while he was being questioned by police about the incident at the campsite. So going back for a moment, At first, police were a bit confused because, like I had said, Sheldon told them that Trevor attacked him and then ran off into the woods, so they were thinking maybe that the burned body was that of a third unknown person. So for a time, investigators had been worried about Trevor, who was this killer, who was somewhere running around in the forest, having attacked his friend Sheldon and perhaps murdered another camper, because they really didn't have any reason to question what Sheldon was telling them since he appeared to be a victim too. And from what the detectives could tell, he seemed like a very nice, well-spoken young man at first. But an autopsy soon revealed that the burned body was in fact Trevor Holminski. So now investigators were able to eliminate the possibility of a third person being involved in this as Trevor had now gone from potential murderer to a victim himself. The examination of his body revealed that he suffered stab wounds, multiple stab wounds into his chest, and multiple stab wounds into his back, and several of them would have been fatal. Then he was placed into the fire pit and burned over the course of several hours. Sheldon now shot past being a person of interest and immediately became a murder suspect. It wasn't just the fact that Trevor had been killed and his body burned. I mean, Sheldon did give an explanation claiming self-defense, that Trevor was angry that he had rebuffed his sexual advances. But the more investigators were coming to realize the situation and what was going on here, the more they began doubting that this was a knife fight between two men that Trevor ended up losing. Starting with Sheldon's supposed knife wounds. On his neck, he had about 10 injuries caused by a knife. Only one of them was somewhat serious, while the others were superficial. And the manner in which these wounds were distributed, they looked to be somewhat orderly, as if they were delivered with a measure of precision as opposed to wounds you might see on a person who had been engaged in a violent, chaotic knife fight where both men would be moving and thrashing about in a way that can be described as a dynamic event. These superficial cuts appear to be more indicative or what is described as hesitation 
or tentative wounds, ones that are made by self-infliction, cuts that are made onto the skin as a person works up the courage to try and make the more serious or fatal wound. If these young men had been in a knife fight, investigators would have expected to see cuts all over the place, not just in one small spot. As a matter of fact, if there are hesitation wounds surrounding a fatal wound, without any other information present or available, suicide will be ruled over any other cause of death in a situation like that. Because Sheldon was not seriously injured, he was discharged from the hospital and brought in for an interrogation, excerpts of which you can watch on Crime Watch Daily. He was asked, Did you stab yourself in the neck? And he answered no. He was asked about the cuts on his wrists. Why did you cut your wrists when you woke up? And he said, because my neck was bleeding. I thought that I was going to die up there. And I felt sad that my best friend just left me there to die and stabbed me in the neck. I was screaming and nobody came to help me. I could die out there. I knew I wasn't going to make it out. The detectives in talking to Sheldon could tell that he was trying to figure out which story was going to fit best as he tried to explain things to minimize the amounts of trouble that he was going to end up being in. His options weren't looking too good for him because from the look of things, it appeared as though only one individual was wielding a knife, not two. Sheldon was the only one doing the stabbing. He stabbed Trevor first and then he stabbed himself in order to stage the scene to make it appear that there had been a knife fight. So the detectives started pressing Sheldon even more, asking him, what if I told you that you were the one that was attacking Trevor with the knife? And he answered, that's a lie. I didn't attack him first. Did you start the fire? And he said, no, I didn't start the fire. Then the detectives made a suggestion using a variation of the story that he recounted on the scene and in the hospital, the one involving Trevor making a sexual advance. Sheldon had said that Trevor was the one who attempted to initiate a sexual encounter and became angry and started attacking him because he rebuffed his advances. The detective said maybe Sheldon was the one who became enraged at Trevor for making the advances and began attacking him because he had become so enraged by Trevor's actions. But Sheldon denied that allegation also. It was clear that the detectives were not going to get a straight story from Sheldon, so they were most likely going to have to rely on whatever evidence they could find at the scene, as well as other physical evidence, in order to try to piece together what exactly went down. If that was even possible. Meanwhile, back at the scene of the killing, detectives searching for evidence and using metal detectors discovered a spot where they found the murder weapon, the knife, as well as Trevor's ID card and a few other pieces of evidence buried in the ground nearby. And they were able to tell Sheldon that they had those items and the only way that those things could have gotten buried is if he had them buried in an attempt to cover up what he had done. So Sheldon basically reverted back to his initial story. Yes, he killed Trevor, that they fought and Sheldon got the better of him, causing him to be seriously wounded. And it was only then when Trevor asked Sheldon to kill him because he was laying there bleeding and not dying. So Sheldon told the detectives that he agreed to do that for him, 
He asked me to put him out of his misery, and I did it. The detective asked him how, and Sheldon replied, I don't know. I guess I had a knife, and I just started swinging. So he asked you to put him out of his misery? Yes. And what did you do to do that? You were being compassionate at that point? Is that what was going on? Uh, yes. Where did you stab him? I don't know. I just closed my eyes and started swinging until I stopped hearing him move. Why did you burn him? Trying to cover other evidence? I don't know. I'm going to prison for the rest of my life anyway. I figure, yes, I started the fire. I was sitting next to him, contemplating what had just happened, what I did, and I started the fire. Trevor's body was very severely burned, but the pathologist did come to the determination that it was most likely from the multiple stab wounds to the torso that could still be identified that were the cause of death because there were no remnants of soot or smoke in Trevor's airway. Detectives rejected Sheldon's insistence that he acted in self-defense when he stabbed Trevor. They believed all of Sheldon's stab wounds were self-inflicted, and with that, they arrested and charged him with first-degree murder. During the trial in 2017, the defense presented two mutual friends of Trevor and Sheldon, who knew both of them from the trade school that they had been enrolled in, and one of them was actually Trevor's roommate. They both testified as to their knowledge of Trevor's attraction to both men and women, and that Trevor would be best described as heterosexual and not homophobic. They both testified that Sheldon and Trevor were best friends, and in the past, they never had any serious disagreements. There was testimony from both of the mutual friends that Trevor had once said that he thought Sheldon was attractive and wished that he could be gay for a day so that they could be intimate, but they did not think that this statement was a serious desire. Even possibly, he kind of said it jokingly because Trevor did not otherwise have anything more to say about it after that. They testified that Sheldon and Trevor had gone on numerous camping trips together previously and that it was Trevor who was the one that introduced LSD to Sheldon while on these camping excursions. Soon, Trevor had become focused on getting ready to enlist in the military. He was on a very strict training regimen, and he was scheduled to have a tattoo removed from his wrist. Trevor had told at least one of the mutual friends that he was going to bring a large quantity of LSD on this last excursion because he wanted to have one more wild camping trip before going into the Marines. This is why they chose that spot that was more isolated and far away from other campers in the area so that they wouldn't be causing a disturbance or raising any suspicions that they were doing something like getting high. On June 14, 2017, after a day of deliberating, a jury convicted Sheldon of first-degree murder with the enhancement of using a knife, and they convicted him of arson with the enhancement of starting a fire in a drought. In August of 2017, Sheldon was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison for the murder with an additional year for the use of a weapon. He was given seven years for the arson on a forest land during a time of emergency, but those seven years would be served concurrently. Sheldon's defense would not have been able to directly use the homophobic panic defense in this case because it was banned in California in 2014. 
Not every state has enacted this law, and California was the first. Ten other states have followed suit, and hopefully all other states and U.S. territories will do the same. Today, Sheldon Stewart is 29 years old and is currently being housed at California State Prison in Solano, California. He will become eligible for parole in 2035 when he is 44 years old. The question that we don't have any real answer to in this case is why did this all have to happen? Unfortunately, we only have one person's account, which is largely unreliable, so we can't really be sure exactly what went down at that campsite that ended with Trevor being stabbed to death and burned. I could not find any information about the levels or amounts of LSD that was found in either of their systems. I don't even know if that would have been possible for Trevor considering how badly his body had been burned. But the first thing I wondered was, could this have been some sort of really bad acid trip? According to AmericanAddictionCenters.org, LSD is an incredibly unpredictable drug and it can have a wide variety of effects from person to person. And this is because LSD is manufactured illegally, so a person may never know exactly what's being used to make the drug when they are taking it. Some people have some delusional experiences regarding themselves or their bodies when they are using LSD, as well as things around them seeming to be changing shape and size and form, A person's senses are distorted, including their depth perception. A person may begin to feel euphoric. Some might experience some levels of paranoia. Panic may set in as well as the sudden onset of a fear of death. And others may have a psychotic reaction to taking LSD. These are the bad acid trips. Could what have happened between Sheldon and Trevor been precipitated by a bad trip like this? I'm not so sure. I guess it would depend on how much LSD they took and how long this bad trip lasted. It's hard to say because everything Sheldon did seemed to have been done with a great deal of deliberation. At least, the cover-up of this did. Perhaps the LSD wore off and Sheldon started thinking more clearly and decided he needed to cover up whatever it was that happened. Sheldon took the time to try to cover up the crime He inflicted wounds on his wrist and on his neck. And because there were so many hesitation wounds, it's possible that he was already thinking clearly and had a really hard time trying to stab himself. If he had been in a more altered state, tripping on acid, would he have made those types of hesitation marks? It's possible. I've never taken acid and I've never murdered anyone, nor have I tried covering up a murder. So I wouldn't know exactly what it's like trying to do all of these things while high. But with the burying of the knife and Trevor's ID card and coming up with this elaborate alibi, it does kind of feel like Sheldon was thinking with a clear mind. In the bits and pieces of the interviews that Sheldon gave to law enforcement, it doesn't seem like he ever really committed to what he was telling them. He was evasive and vague, and he appeared to have somewhat of a foggy memory. How much of that is true, or how much of that is him just avoiding taking responsibility, it's really hard to say because they had introduced LSD into the mix, 
and we just don't know how much either of them ingested and how they were affected by the drug. But Sheldon's actions after the fact demonstrated a consciousness of guilt, meaning that the things that he was doing were proof that he knew that he was guilty. At the very least, he was guilty of doing something wrong. And this is demonstrated from his attempts to try to bury the knife up to and including the burning of Trevor's body. It might also include Sheldon's attempts at taking his own life, but to me, that whole thing felt a little bit half-hearted. I think that if Sheldon really wanted to kill himself that he would have been able to do it. But since most of his wounds were superficial, either he didn't have the courage to do it or he really didn't want to complete it. The aspects of this case that are most difficult to ascertain are what are the things that Sheldon is saying that are true and what are the things that he is lying about. And you know what, dreamers? I'm not hating on Sheldon as much as I have have other criminal defendants or murderers that we've been discussing lately, such as Patricia Esparza and Mark Redwine, our latest stories leading up to this one. I'm just not getting this scumbag vibe from Sheldon. What he did is particularly gruesome. The burning of the body all the way down to the skeleton really gives me the chills, and I can't even imagine what that was like for this young man to have sat there all night stoking that fire trying to burn his best friend's earthly remains out of existence. The horror of that, I just wonder if Sheldon has nightmares about it. But even though he did that, and even though in the Crime Watch Daily episode, the detectives that were interviewed for the segment called Sheldon Stewart an evil human being, I just haven't arrived at that conclusion despite all that he did. And honestly, I can't help but think that the LSD had something to do with it. Even though we don't know how much they took or how it affected their behavior, there's a part of me that has to give Sheldon that benefit of the doubt that maybe one or both of them really, really had this adverse reaction to this drug and that things went horribly wrong between the two of them. And even though the truth may be buried someplace in the recesses of Sheldon's mind, Perhaps he himself doesn't even really get it or understand how all of this went so terribly wrong. And everything after the fact, the hiding of the evidence, the burning of the body, and the self-inflicted knife wounds, those were Sheldon's reactions to the fear or the shame or the regret as to what took place between himself and his best friend. And that part gets me too, this best friend aspect. There did not ever seem to be a thing that was a point of contention between Sheldon and Trevor. Their mutual friends got on the stand and said that there had never been any long-standing issues between them. They never had a huge disagreement. And to me, while I don't know a whole lot about either one of them, they seemed to like doing the same things and they had similar interests and they built their friendship around that. And it does appear as though a part of that became the using of the LSD. And apparently Trevor was the one who introduced the hallucinogenic drug to Sheldon. That doesn't quite jive with the guy who's about to go into the Marines. Before enlistment, a recruit has to be completely clear of drugs. You have to have a complete clean bill of health and you can't even have any tattoos. I don't know if that's changed the tattoo policy and we know Trevor was slated to have one removed. It was said, though, that Trevor wanted to have one last hurrah, a camping trip with his best friend, 
and his LSD, so I get that too. It would have cleared out of his system relatively quickly. It depends on the type of LSD and what's in it, and the kinds of testing that were going to be done to detect it. Anyway, the point is, it's really hard to imagine how things went from one last hurrah to this. I can see the drugs playing a pivotal role in how things went so badly. Not that it alleviates Sheldon from needing to take responsibility for his actions. It just gives us perhaps a measure of understanding as to why all of this happened in the first place. Time and time again, we've seen defendants use drugs and or alcohol as an excuse for their criminal behavior, or they use it as a reason for not remembering what occurred. But Sheldon really didn't do that here in this case. As a matter of fact, the LSD was hardly brought up at all. So it leads me to believe that it wasn't anything that was explored all that deeply. In all the articles, other than the friends going up to the campsite with the LSD, it was never really mentioned again. And Sheldon didn't say that he was on a bad acid trip, but he did give the impression that he wasn't always clear as to what happened because when he answers questions, he says, well, I guess I did this or I guess I did that. And when detectives attempted to clarify by asking him about the possibility of things happening a certain way, Sheldon would deny it or say that what they were suggesting wasn't true. So he was, in a sense, willing to remember what didn't happen, but wouldn't fully commit to what did happen. I don't know if that's him doing that or if it's feeling shame or regret or fear or if it's the drugs. But either way, I don't think anyone ever got a complete story from Sheldon as to what actually happened. He remained evasive and vague throughout. When I looked up LSD overdose in the AmericanAddictionCenter.org article, it said that while someone is under the influence of LSD, he or she may not have the ability to make good decisions, they may have troubles with motor functions, they may suffer from poor judgment and impulse control, or exhibit behaviors that are typically out of character. And in addition to that, the LSD overdose is probably going to affect a person psychologically as opposed to physically, and it is not life-threatening. However, people may be putting themselves or others in danger while they are in the throes of an acid overdose. Symptoms of an LSD overdose include hallucinations, depression, mood swings, extreme fear of losing control, fear of death, panic, despair, terrified feelings and psychosis and if you're bringing alcohol into the mix it can amplify these effects and increase the chances of experiencing an overdose so based on this information is it possible that these young men one or both of them took too much lsd and went into an overdose considering how the evening ended it doesn't sound out of the realm of possibility and then as Sheldon began recovering from the overdose and the effects of the LSD were wearing off, the reality of what happened started sinking in. And while he began thinking more clearly, that is when the covering up and creating a story and an alibi began. As a matter of fact, so many of the factors listed involving an LSD overdose appear as though they could have played a factor in what happened between Sheldon and Trevor inability to make good decisions, poor judgment, poor impulse control, behaviors out of character, hallucinations, mood swings, extreme fears, panic, 
terrified thoughts and psychosis. But the bottom line is that was not Sheldon's defense. He had insisted that Trevor made a sexual advance and he rebuffed it. Trevor persisted. Sheldon continued to insist that he wasn't interested, going so far as to show Trevor his penis that it was not erect as a demonstration of how uninterested he was in having a sexual encounter. That part of the story I'm skeptical of because it seems like the opposite of what one might do in order to turn down a sexual advance, showing another person their private parts. As a matter of fact, it sounds like something a man would do in order to attempt to entice someone. And I don't get that misconstrued. If you're looking to make a sexual advance, please don't take out your penis. I don't think that's going to go over very well. But when you pull back and take the situation into consideration, you have these two guys. They're isolated from other campers. And hypothetically speaking, the subject of having sex comes up. And then one of them takes out his penis to show the other person. It doesn't seem like something someone in Sheldon's situation would actually do since the advance is being made towards him and he supposedly wants no part of it. So that leads us into our next possible theory or my next possible theory. Could Sheldon have been the one who made the sexual advance and was rebuffed by Trevor? And in retaliation, out of embarrassment or fear, he attacked Trevor and killed him in the heat of the moment type of killing. Not really having all the facts as to who did what, when we look back at other cases where people have attempted to use the homophobic panic defense in a murder case, the killer is usually the one who launches the attack on the person who made the unwanted advance. In this case, Sheldon claims that Trevor is the one and that he did both of these, that he made the advance and he initiated the attack. Is that possible? Is it likely? It could be. It is, but it doesn't really make the most sense. Now, if Sheldon was the one who made the sexual advance, then we could surmise that Trevor was the one who did initiate the attack on Sheldon in response, and that Trevor was the one who experienced the homophobic panic and responded by attacking his friend, and it just so happened that Sheldon, in an attempt to defend himself, got the best of Trevor and ended up killing him. But Sheldon is either too embarrassed or ashamed and doesn't want to admit to his role in all of this, so he's laid the blame for both of those on Trevor, that Trevor made the unwanted sexual advance and he launched the attack first, and this is Sheldon's attempt to absolve himself of any responsibility for what happened. And a big factor in reaching the possible conclusion that Sheldon was the one who made the sexual advance, to me, is the fact that he admitted to being the only one of the two who exposed his penis. And my first inclination is to think that the person who exposes himself like that is attempting to entice the other person, not to dissuade them. At first, I even wondered if the whole he made up an unwanted sexual advance story were even true at all. But then when I heard the friends testify that they knew of Trevor having made comments insinuating that he might be interested in sex with Sheldon, at least for a day, so they say, then I thought that there might be something to that. But for it to escalate to murder and for everything that happened after that, that's the part that gets me. Trevor was going to be going off into the military anyway, and he wasn't going to be around, and they could have just put the whole thing behind them. 
So why such a violent reaction? And with that, I end up back on the LSD. And I just keep going around in circles with it to the point where I just think we're going to have to accept that whatever it was that happened that night, that the truth is buried someplace in Sheldon's memories, as well as buried with Trevor. Motive doesn't have to be proven in court. However, it does help. It's kind of a strange thing to chase after if you think about it. If you kill somebody, then you better have a darn good explanation for it. We just want to understand. And this is one that stumps me. And the easy place for me to land is with the drugs because drugs can make people do things that just don't make sense. Sheldon said it was self-defense. The evidence isn't indicative of that. There was no indication anywhere in Sheldon's body that he was subjected to a sudden and unexpected knife attack. There are no cuts or stab wounds anywhere on his body that are consistent with having been in a knife fight that turned into a life or death struggle. Almost all of his wounds were superficial, none of them were life-threatening, while Trevor sustained numerous fatal stab wounds to both the front and back sides of his torso. In addition, and quite notably, neither Sheldon nor Trevor had any wounds that would be classified as defensive wounds. If each of them were armed with a knife, not only would they be wildly trying to stab one another in a dynamic fight, they'd also be using their free hand to fend off knife blows. Neither man had wounds indicative of attempting to defend themselves. And because Trevor had the most severe and fatal wounds, it leads us to conclude that Sheldon had the tactical advantage from the start. Because of the lack of defense wounds on Trevor's body, it is quite possible that the attack came as a complete surprise and he had no chance to react or defend himself from the knife blows. And because Sheldon's wounds were all superficial and uniform in one area on his neck, they were all determined to be self-inflicted. Therefore, we can reasonably reach the conclusion that the only person who wielded a knife that night was Sheldon. And what's more is it's even possible that Trevor was asleep when the attack began. But that still doesn't bring us any closer to why. But it gives us a clear understanding of how. Once Trevor was dispatched, Sheldon had the entire rest of the evening to come up with an alibi story which he tried to sell to detectives who never believed him from the start. But it seems as though that Sheldon had this idea in his head that if he could somehow erase Trevor completely by burning him up until there was nothing left, he could make up a story to go along with that. I believe his story was going to kind of go the way that he was telling it, that they were camping and they dropped acid and that Trevor made a sexual advance, but began attacking him with a knife when he turned him down. Once Trevor stopped attacking him, then he just ran off into the woods and Sheldon would claim he had no idea where Trevor went. From there, Sheldon began the process of trying to burn Trevor completely away so no trace of him could be found. And I don't know if he was just young and ignorant or had little knowledge of exactly what it takes to burn a human body completely down into a pile of ashes, or he clearly doesn't watch enough Dateline, 48 Hours, 2020, Forensic Files, Netflix, Hulu, etc. to know that it is impossible to do that in a campsite fire pit. The average temperature of a fire at a campsite is about 600 degrees Fahrenheit or 315 degrees Celsius. 
In order to cremate a body, it requires a minimum of 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit or 760 degrees Celsius for about three hours. But it wasn't without trying on Sheldon's part, that's for sure. Of all the cases over the years that we've heard about where a body has been burned, I don't recall ever reading any details about the body being burned down to a skeleton. And if there had been an extremely badly burned body that was unrecognizable, there was usually some sort of accelerant that was used. Out there in the woods, I assume that these guys did not have an accelerant with them because you don't need any, nor are you supposed to have any when building a campfire. So that means that Sheldon had to sit there most of the night to make sure that the fire kept going and keeping it concentrated on Trevor's body. Human bodies are made up of so much water they just don't burn easily. So with no accelerant like lighter fluid or something like that, Sheldon was going to have to keep the fire from burning itself out. And I think he did so thinking that he could turn Trevor's body into a pile of ashes, but he had no way of reaching the temperatures that it would take to actually make that happen. Now, did Sheldon think that he successfully burned Trevor up into non-existence? There's a part of me that thinks that he may have burned him up enough, which is why I think he stayed with the story that they fought and Trevor ran off into the woods. Maybe Sheldon figured that if they believed him, they wouldn't even bother looking that closely at the fire pit. Maybe Sheldon himself was unable to recognize any parts of Trevor that had been remaining in the pit. And it doesn't seem like the first campers on the scene who came to Sheldon's aid noticed Trevor being in the pit either. It wasn't until a firefighter went to douse the hotspot in the pit did he notice charred skeletal remains. Sheldon never admitted to starting the fire. He just claimed that it had been caused by him flicking a cigarette. But the extent to which Trevor was burned indicates otherwise. Is it possible that this violent encounter between Trevor and Sheldon was triggered by something else? I thought maybe, perhaps, it had something to do with jealousy on Sheldon's part. Maybe he was jealous of Trevor. There was a time not too long before this happened that Trevor was actually kind of a troubled young man. He wasn't getting along at all with his parents, so he was sent off to a 98-day therapeutic wilderness treatment for use a couple of years earlier. Trevor actually made a 12-minute documentary about it, and I will play the audio of that documentary at the end of this episode. And in it, he talks about how the retreat was a coming-of-age experience for him. It changed the trajectory of his life, and it inspired him to move forward with a childhood dream of becoming a Marine. And it is at that retreat where he was given the earth name of Blue Crow. You will hear Trevor explain the meaning of the name and how it is a reflection of him in the audio of that documentary, which you can also watch on YouTube, like I said, I will tack it on to the end of this episode for you. So back to what I was saying, maybe there was a part of Sheldon that envied the progress Trevor had made, having gone from his own parents calling the cops on him to him coming home with a whole new perspective and outlook on life. And then Trevor took that experience and used it to see his way into the Marine Corps a dream that he probably thought at times was gone once his life became turbulent in his late teen years. Maybe Sheldon was feeling left behind, or maybe like his own life was inadequate or he didn't measure up. All I know about Sheldon is that he was working as a chef. The article just said chef, 
I don't know what kind of chef, if he was deeply into culinary arts and wanted to become like a famous chef, or if he was more of a cook. There is very little out there about him. There had once been an Indiegogo campaign fund that his mom started entitled Free Sheldon, My 23-Year-Old Son is Facing Unjust Charges, but it only raised $55 of a $25,000 goal, and eventually it was shut down. So there is very, very little support out there for Sheldon. So that's part of the reason why I thought perhaps there was some resentment or jealousy that Sheldon felt towards Trevor and that this was the manifestation of that. Like I said, only two people know the truth and one of them is dead. In an article in the East Bay Times from August of 2015, it said that Trevor was remembered as a kind and insightful young man, that he loved nature, and that he was an audio engineering student at Expression College in Emeryville, and he was in the process of enlisting in the U.S. Marine Corps at the time of his murder. His mother described him as a kind, welcoming, and amazing young man. He loved life and was very much looking forward to the future. And that will bring us to the end of this story, the tale of a blue crow. I would like to hear some of your thoughts as to what you think happened or why you think this may have happened. What are some of your theories as to the motive for this killing? Let me know on Facebook, our Instagram, or on Twitter when you see the posts about this episode go up. Ask to join the Facebook group if you're not in it and follow me on the other social media platforms. Don't forget to leave a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts, like I said, that will help more people discover our show. Don't forget to check out our Patreon page. That is how we keep the lights on over here at California Dreaming, coming to you from Nevada. If you're new to the show, it's a long story, but my heart and soul is still in California. There are dozens of episodes that are exactly like what you hear here on our free show. From here, if you want to stay tuned, you can hear Trevor Holminski's documentary entitled A Blue Crow. It's 12 minutes long. You will first hear his mom speaking, and then you will mostly hear Trevor talking about his experiences at the retreat. And in the end, you will hear both of Trevor's parents talking to him. And after that, I'm going to play a short promo for you guys from a podcast called Murder Mile that I think you will enjoy. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for that audio from Trevor Holminski. And until next time, sweet dreams. Yeah, I think when you're in that position, you'll do whatever it takes to save the life of your child. And, you know, coming from a business background, it was really interesting to have a problem that was so near and dear to me, but that I couldn't fix. And I could always fix things at work. And if I didn't know how to fix it, 
I could talk to somebody who knew how to fix it. In this case, we had to talk to other people because we didn't know how to fix our, our son. And you were the most important thing to us. And we just felt lost and, and scared and, you know, all different kinds of emotions because we can fix you. And so when somebody said here, this is going to help fix your family and fix your kid. You need to do these therapy assignments. <laughs> Bring it. <laughs> so. The, I guess the story really started when I was, a, I was a freshman in high school. The fighting at home turned from passive aggression into, I mean, I guess active aggression. The physical line got broken, and that was when I tried to run away and ended up uh, on a 51-50 in a lockdown. It was a weird experience. We weren't allowed to leave our chairs. We were given a chair when we were admitted. All strings and sharps were taken off of our person, mm -hmm. and we were placed in our chair, and it reclined into a bed. And aside from the bathroom, you never got out of it. I understand it. It was a safety precaution, but it was strange being confined to a chair. Not a, not a room, but a chair. Uh, the second night that I was in the psych ward on the 5150, I was told at something like 3 in the afternoon that I had been cleared for release and that my parents should be picking me up. I got called in to see the psychiatrist, and I figured this is when they're going to let me out, and I go in there, and there are these three guys, and I don't know who any of them are. It was these two really big Polynesian guys yeah. and this really stocky Russian guy just built like <laughs> tanks. Nice. And uh, they said that I was supposed to come with them. And so naturally, my response was, well, show me the paperwork. Show me a signature. Mm -hmm. And they they did. They did that. Nice. So they told me that I wasn't allowed to know where I was going until we were in the car. Once we got to altitude, you could just see the sun setting still. You could see that stretch of pink across the, the black night sky. I was looking down California for the last time and who knows how long at... A romantic partner that I never got to say my goodbyes with. Yeah. I mean, the last thing that I said to her for two years was, I'll see you tonight. We landed in Vegas in the parking garage. They handed me off to an off-duty sheriff and his son who transport part-time. Yeah. And they drove me hours. We ended up in southern Utah, just outside of a town called Enterprise. It was must have been two in the morning at that point. And I go in with the transporters, and they handed me off to my new home. I was wrong. <laughs> I was so wrong. They took all my clothes and gave me new ones, which I was pretty mad about because I wanted to maintain my individuality. Mm -hmm. But I later became very grateful for because it was really cold outside. Once we got that exchange done, they took my picture and put me in a car, blindfolded me, and just started driving. We drove about three hours into the middle of nowhere. Um, it was all dirt roads. There were no houses visible for literally miles. It was dark. There were three feet of snow on the ground. And we get out, and they hand me my, my personal belongings, which at this point are contained in a garbage bag. And this stuff was really heavy. We're talking 65, 70 pounds of stuff. And they had me walk about three-quarters of a mile in Crocs through waist-deep snow with that stuff on my back to get to my camp. It was dirty. We were, we were in a canvas tent, which I later found out was like the Hilton. How long were you at Red Crescent? I, uh, I spent 98 days in the wilderness. So what did you guys do every day? We, we would get up, we would make ourselves breakfast after rekindling the fire off coals that were left over from the night before. We would break down camp until there was no visible trace that there had ever been a camp there. Then we would start hiking. For the first two-thirds of your stay or so, you had to make your backpack out of parachute cord 
tarp and webbing. And that was a skill that took practice. Your first couple of packs were really uncomfortable and they tended to explode. We would hike anywhere from a mile and a half to 12 miles, just depending on how far we needed to go. Generally along the way, we would find a water source of some kind, whether it was a trough for cows to drink from or a stream. We had sanitizing drops. How did they flavor the water? The chlorine tasted awful. We hated the chlorine. The, the 07 was actually uh, was pretty, pretty transparent. Our favorite was when we would get a good stream with 07 drops. And we actually preferred the chlorine with troughs because you don't want to taste what is in, what is in those, those water sources. That was disgusting. <laughs> and, and we had this strict routine. So, you know, we had to set up our camp, write in our journals. You were to wash your face and then brush your teeth and get your, your hygiene checked off. And at that point, once everyone had done that, we were allowed to go to bed. That was, that was the story of every day, though. We just wanted to go to bed. <laughs> In, in the wilderness, we had therapy once a week. A therapist would come out and uh, and meet with us, usually on Monday. Dave was Dave was something. Dave did his job very well. Very smart, very smart man. Um, very good therapist. He I did not like him. He uh, he was very harsh. He he did break me down. That was his objective. Was to put me into that space where I could grow up again. And he did it incredibly well. But it wasn't fun to go through it. There were very few sessions with Dave that I did not cry for most of the session. What did you feel that was for? At the time, I didn't really see a purpose. I just thought he was mean. Yeah. I, I just thought Doc Dave liked to pick on children, and that's why he was a therapist. Was he, was he touching on something that needed to be touched on? Uh, I didn't see it, but yeah, what, what he was doing, he was trying to elicit the problems and the emotional responses that got me sent away in the first place. At, at Red Cliff, every student was required to bow 14 fires in order to graduate. I ended up being required to bow 100 fires. So most people had to bow 14. I was required to bow 100. It was a therapeutic device that Doc Dave threw in to elicit a response. And at that point, I had a broken hand, so I couldn't bow yet. I was pretty upset. There was a picture of me that got sent back to my parents that just had me almost in tears, looking just desolate, soul-crushed, holding up a sign that said, 100 fires is a load of crap. I got very, very good at it, so I would bow 25 in a day. Yeah. It wouldn't, it just, they weren't a problem anymore. There was a special privilege awarded to about 1 in 10 students that went to Redcliffe, and that was, you were awarded with a knife, and it was a huge trust thing. They didn't, they didn't give it to you unless they really thought you deserved a knife. And I was, I was awarded a knife as well as an earth name. An earth name was something that they awarded to more students, but again, it was something that they would only give it to a student if they believed that you had grown, made, made an effort to better yourself while you were out there. And I was awarded with the name Blue Crow. Um, it, was, it was when I was given this. I was awarded the name Blue Crow because it, it described me the way the the way they put it. It was blue, which was for friendliness, openness, freedom, but at the same time it can connotate sadness, depression, melancholy, loneliness. And the crow, which is an incredibly intelligent bird, an amazing communicator, but is also often viewed as a trickster or manipulative in a lot of lore. The name really it symbolized the dualities that people saw in me both both sides definitely still exist they probably always will but that name was a reminder to be conscious of which one I'm, I'm showing people two days before 
you were to graduate, you were put on something called a vision quest. And vision quest was, I mean, it, it wasn't an actual Native American vision quest, although that's what it could have been if it would have been longer and not paid for and in a therapeutic program. You were put off on a solo. You'd done solo before. It was just camping. You'd set up your own camp away from the group, and you weren't allowed to communicate with the group in any way. So I was on the vision quest for a few days, just in my own camp, and just getting to think and reflect and get ready for the fact. I knew I wasn't going home next. And uh, on that, that day, they came out with a truck, and I packed up camp and got in the truck. They blind. They didn't blindfold us. That was the time that we didn't get blindfolded. That's what it was. They drove us back to the base camp. We were given a shower. It was the first actual shower that we had gotten, any of us had gotten in, for me, it was, like I said, 98 days. Your first shower in three months, is that is a beautiful experience. Let me tell you what, that was, I could hear the trumpets of heaven. We were told that one by one we were to be called up, and there was this path, and they said, just run down the path. When they called my name, I got up, and I started jogging down the path, and I was starting to slow down, because I've been running for a while. I don't know where this is going. And then I come around a corner, and I can see my parents, that I, who I haven't seen in months, standing in front of me. And I just kicked it right back up into overdrive. And I just kept running. And I, when I got to them, I just, we, we hugged. It, I mean, it was reuniting a family that the last time we saw each other was a physical fight and them calling the police. And this was us getting to see each other again after going through therapy and having a mediator and writing letters to each other and me opening up. It, it was really, it was the, getting the family put back together for the first time. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel great. I'm incredibly proud of you, Trevor. You have walked a path that many people four times your age haven't walked. And I, the things you have done in your short life are amazing to me and the progress that you've made. And when I think about how close we came to losing you, One of the things that uh, I really wanted to make clear was, unlike some of these uh, other boys, um, the way they felt, I had to tell them, especially during the goodbye group and any other chance I got, that a lot of the parents don't send you to treatment to get rid of you. Absolutely. They send you to treatment to get you back. <clears throat> okay, so I'm here getting therapy and my parents are out playing golf and right. taking vacations, vacations and, and enjoying life and it's not necessarily that way absolutely not when he was in the wilderness we didn't have any contact with him except letters and every wednesday doc dave would call us and tell us how our son was doing and we would sit around from thursday till wednesday morning waiting to talk to doc dave again and then we'd talk to him and then we'd Wait around. Picture. See, that's funny because I would wait around from Monday to Monday for Doc Dave to leave again <laughs> so that I could not be talking to him. That's kind of funny. <laughs> Two different sides of Doc Dave. Yeah, apparently. Because <laughs> yeah. my, my, my happiest moment was when he was in the car driving away and I was like, bye, Dave. <laughs> Hey friends, I'm Michael, host of the Murder Mile UK True Crime Podcast. I would be delighted if you joined me every Thursday for a walk through the untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders of London's West End. Featuring hundreds of fascinating true crime tales you won't hear 
anywhere else. If you're looking for something different, the award-winning and highly acclaimed Murder Mile UK True Crime Podcast is researched using the original police files. It's presented as a dramatization. Each episode is crafted as a labor of love, and it focuses on the victims' lives in an honest, detailed, and sympathetic way. Season 5 has just begun, so why not treat yourself to more than 150 episodes? If that sounds like your cup of tea, search for the Murder Mile UK True Crime Podcast. Thank you.